Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everyone. Welcome to this very special episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I mean, <laughs> I could almost call every episode very special. You know, a uh, author I love very much once wrote that every letter is a gift and you should never open a letter by apologizing for how long it's been since you last wrote. I kind of feel that way about this podcast. It is a gift to you, a letter to you. I'm not saying that to aggrandize your experience of my writing, but I am saying that as a way of expressing how I feel whenever I craft one of these. <laughs> craft. Haha. <laughs> this episode is going to be one of the lightly edited, not pre-scripted ones because it's my birthday. Well, <laughs> this episode is the one I'm making in celebration of my birthday, uh, even though it's been a couple of weeks since the actual day in question. Although, here's a fun fact about me. I was born on December 11th, but then was sort of in an interim foster care situation for about two weeks before I was finally delivered to my parents as an adopted baby on December 24th. That's right, I arrived on Christmas Eve, and uh, my aunt was involved with the adoption agency, so she actually got a hold of me before my parents did, and she put me in a Christmas stocking. So when they knocked on the door and handed me to my mom and dad, I was in a Christmas stocking, which I still have, uh, and it barely, like I can almost fit my foot in it, which is just fun and cute. <sighs> I'll have to find a photo of that and post it for all of you with this episode. So every year, I write down a list of all the books that I've read, and then I read the list to all of you, and I sort of comment on the things I've read and talk about them a little bit. I don't know if anybody who listens to this podcast finds a list like this interesting, but it's something that I do really enjoy doing because, if for no other reason, then I can sort of reflect on everything that I've read in the previous year. So without further ado, let's get to the list. These are mostly in the chronicle... <laughs> These are mostly in chronological order as I read them. However, when I read multiple books in a series, I did a little cut and paste rearranging so that I'll just talk about the whole series at once and not have to keep coming back to the same book. So this episode is going to be the first uh, 60, 70, and then next week's episode will be the following 60 or 70, because uh, I read 129 books in this year. I, I always start my year over on my birthday, just so that it gives me a little bit of a sort of, I, I guess you could call it relaxed time between my birthday and New Year's, as I sort of come up with my resolutions and things like that. But I start them over on my birthday, uh, so that, you know, January 1st, when you're all hungover, you don't have to do something new, you've already started. <laughs> Uh, anyway, without further ado, let's get to that list. So here's the list in no particular order, starting with the very first book I completed this year, The Magician and the Fool 
by Barth Anderson. This was a sort of a mystery fantasy novel about guys who collect and make their own tarot decks. If you can kind of imagine a combination of Dan Brown's uh, Angels and Demons or Da Vinci Code with Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, it didn't really stick with me too much, uh, but, you know, it was about tarot decks. It was kind of cool. The art was cool. Can't really recommend it. The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. I read two Kurt Thompson books this year. This was the first of them. The Soul of Shame is kind of about shame. There's a lot of talk about shame in our culture right now. Uh, the idea that if you acknowledge the things you're ashamed of, you can sort of learn to cope with them or deal with something you don't understand about your own mind. Uh, this is a book about shame written from a Christian perspective by a psychologist that my dad is a big fan of. You'll notice quite a few Christian books on the list this year. Uh, those are things that my parents were reading that I also read. I... I'm not a particularly religious person, but I do like to engage with things that are important to people I care about, and this book was an interesting read. I was actually shocked at how not particularly religious it was for a book that was clearly written from a Christian perspective. It's funny, Kurt Thompson very blatantly says at the beginning of his book that he's writing a Christian book and then proceeds to just write a book. It's very much the opposite of uh, Jordan B. Peterson, who insists he's writing secular books and then proceeds to write something very Christian. Uh, anyway, moving on. Number three was Spider-Man, The Clone Conspiracy by Dan Slott et al. I should say et al. Uh, on this list, you'll see a lot, especially with comic books, where there are sometimes five, six, seven people involved in writing them. And I didn't really have space in my notebook to write all of those down. Uh, not meaning to not acknowledge the work of artists and things like that. It's just something that happened uh, when I was writing things down. Uh, definitely feel free to look people up. I definitely count comic books as books that I've read. They take me about the same amount of time per page as reading prose does because I really like to dig into the art. Uh, Spider-Man the Clone Conspiracy, totally forgettable. Basically, Spider-Man fighting uh, his entire rogues gallery, who he thought were dead, who've been brought back as clones. It's, uh, you know, it was fun. I have no idea how I ended up getting a copy of it. It's just one of those weird things. Like, someone had it. They loaned it to me. It was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. Um, but it, was, it wasn't particularly impactful. Uh, unlike the next book, Florence Foster Jenkins by Nicholas Martin and Jasper Reese. I deeply love Florence Foster Jenkins as a historical figure, as an artist, as a person, as a personality. Uh, there's a beautiful movie about her starring Meryl Streep. And if you're unfamiliar with her, just go look her up. She was a middle-aged woman who was a music lover who just woke up one day and decided she wanted to be a opera singer and do concerts, including a concert at Carnegie Hall. I was about to say unfortunately, but I think it, 
a, a better word would just be, however, <laughs> she was possibly entirely tone deaf. And it's sort of unclear whether or not she knew that. The film definitely portrays it as she was a person who just wanted to make people happy and people were happy when she sang uh, because she was so, so terrible that it was funny. It's it's definitely funny. Like, she cannot hit a single note she's aiming at. It's 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 impressive. Um, you could find recordings of her. Uh, the The album is called the glory and then there's like a question mark of the human voice um yeah even her publisher or uh the record company whatever were a bit uh (laughs) confused as to why she wanted to record herself she's sort of a a figure kind of like the scottish poet mcgonagall who wrote absolutely horrible poetry, but he insisted on reading it to people, and he was quite popular. People loved to hear him read his poetry, even though it was terrible. Uh, you know, he, he had no sense of, of rhythm or, or syllable count or even rhyme scheme, and yet it spoke to people in some way. And McGonagall didn't really seem to be aware of if people were laughing at him or not, it was kind of this thing where he just was pleased people wanted to hear his poetry. And I think Florence Foster Jenkins was kind of a similar historical figure. Anyway, the the book about her is fantastic. The film is fantastic. And to me, she's such an inspiring figure because she just decided she wanted to do it and she did it. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, as human beings, we often spend so much time waiting for someone to give us permission. And I always find it really inspiring to engage with people who didn't, who just did it. Memory and Dream by Charles DeLint. This book is heartbreaking. His writing often is. He created this entire fictional city called Newford. It's somewhere out east, possibly in the Midwest. I it's it's its location is sort of difficult to find. Uh, sort of like uh Garrison Keeler's Lake Wobegon or uh Gotham City in the DC comics. But it very much feels like a real place and he writes these urban fantasy stories about artists who are able to conjure something beyond normal in a world where something beyond normal also exists. And these two things sort of exist side by side. Beautiful book. Anything by Charles DeLint, I highly recommend. Next is Walden by Thoreau. It's so funny that as someone who has lived in little cabins in the woods and sailboats that I restored with my own hands and and all manner of ramshackle and off-the-grid kind of living situations that I've never read Walden until this year. And I gotta say, it is not the book that I thought it would be based on sort of its larger cultural osmosis of, of what we think of Walden being. There's a lot more stuff in it about conversation with bricklayers and going for walks in town and also how much Thoreau spent on nails. It's it's much more practical and level-headed and really is not about 
deserting the company of other human beings. You know, it seems like it's such a popular book for sort of back to the lander homesteader types, but it it really is almost a celebration of human companionship. And it was actually shockingly enjoyable for something that has been so influential and kind of done to death in terms of the cultural conversation. It's a it's a lovely little book and I enjoyed reading it. My favorite uh, bit from it, and I'm, I'm pulling this from memory, is his advice that if an act if a new activity requires you to buy new clothes, don't do it unless you're willing to do the activity in the clothes you already have. So if you don't like doing the activity in the clothes you already have, don't spend money on new clothes to do a new activity. I thought for a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic that I was going to get really into ocean swimming and I almost ordered a wetsuit to do it. Uh, <laughs> but instead I just went swimming in the ocean and decided I, I wasn't really that excited about it. So I didn't order the wetsuit. Um, fortunately, no one saw me when my shorts almost came off, but that's a story for another day. The Other by David Gooderson. This is a book by the author of Snow Falling on Cedars, which I have not read. My sister gave me this for Christmas, and it was very strange, very odd, very weird book, but it, it spoke to me a lot. It's about a, a man reflecting on a relationship he had with a close friend who was who a close friend who exerted an outsized influence on his life. I had a very close friend in high school who really affected me a lot and influenced a lot of my early 20s in a way that I reflect on it now and I'm really not happy about that. I feel like he kind of took advantage of me in a lot of ways and this book is sort of about a relationship very much like that. It's a it's a haunting book and at points very sad, which seems to be David Gooderson's whole bag. <laughs> Moving on to Metro Metatropolis. I need to make sure I say that word. Not Metropolis, Metatropolis. This is by Bear, Buckle, Lake, Scalzi, and Schroeder. It's five interconnected short stories that form sort of an overarching exercise in world building. Man, I found it compulsive and interesting. It's sort of imagining the different kinds of cities that we might live in in the near future. Everything from a very Cory Doctorow-esque, uh, decentralized, burning man on the move kind of thing where everybody rides their bicycles to the next campground and they all set up and it's all organized via, you know, open source computer networks to a... Uh, hyper uh, cloistered cut off ecotopia type thing up in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest. It's absolutely readable. It's super fun. One of my favorite sci-fi uh, worlds I've ever experienced and just really imaginative, mind boggling in its imaginativeness as, as especially it's kind of it's it's often not fun to read near future sci-fi that is more than 10 years old but this was absolutely an exception check it out the reason for god by timothy keller uh this is the second time i've read this book i read it the first time a few years ago um timothy keller just recently passed away and so my parents were revisiting a lot of his books this is probably one of the more compelling pro 
Christianity pro-religion books I've ever read. Uh, Keller is a very, very interesting figure who, uh, he did a talk at Google. Uh, If you're sort of interested in what religion has to offer in the modern day, he makes a very compelling case. Uh, I got to go see him speak once in New York City, and he is a He's a fantastic public intellectual. He is the kind of public intellectual that uh, Jordan Peterson thinks he is. Keller is able to pull things as disparate as ancient myth and Star Wars and, uh, you know, modern cartoons and 70s television all together and kind of form this engaging picture of the world. Uh, (laughs) You know, the sort of thing that, like, quote-unquote intellectuals like Peterson think they're doing, Keller actually did with aplomb. And he was always very gentle and very kind uh, to people that he disagreed with, which is something that I I genuinely find inspiring. Uh, speaking of inspiring, the next book is called Your Mouth is Lovely by Nancy Richler. This was the other book my sister gave me for Christmas last year, and it is the tale of a... Russian woman uh, sort of telling the story of her life and her relationship with her daughter. And it is, it's sort of this kind of magical realism space where it's, it's, it's partially a historical narrative and partially a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's sort of a fantasy. It also really dovetailed with the fact that for the first three months of this year, I was still finishing my degree in history, and I was taking a course on the history of uh, Russia during the period that the book is set. So I kind of got to have this wonderful, fantastical story dovetailing with the things I was studying. Harold, Claudia, and Their Son, Duncan, by Nadine Gard. Gardiner? Gardiner? Gardiner. Gardiner. I don't know. It's Nadine Gardiner, something like that. Uh, This is a a little, like, kind of uh, penguin pocketbook about a couple whose son commits a crime and they're sort of accepting it. Kind of imagine a Kafka-esque descent into sort of the madness of dealing with a really difficult situation. Uh, I'm now questioning my memory if the son commits a crime or he just dies or it was sort of a strange book it was very dreamlike uh just just 60 pages but but very very odd i i mostly remember the way that it talks about getting slammed by sudden and difficult news and how in that moment you become very aware of like a scratch on the leg of a chair that kind of like sudden focus on a tiny detail in a difficult moment. The book really captured that well. <laughs> Obviously, the the overall plot didn't stick with me, but uh, the life of Saint Teresa of Avila, a biography by Carlos Iyer. I think this was one of my favorite books that I read for my history degree uh, in all the years that I was back in school. Saint Teresa was a nun in Spain during the Inquisition, and she saw these visions of Christ that were very personal, she really connected to them, and uh, and then ended up 
running afoul of the Inquisition. But what was amazing is that she wrote this book-long defense of sort of her theology and her visions and her worldview that we still have today. So this book was sort of a history of her writing the book and then how the book was received through the centuries and just one of those incredibly compelling historical figures who, even across the gap of centuries, becomes a a, a fully realized three-dimensional person. Speaking of which, uh, the next book, Parallel Histories, Muslims and Jews in Inquisitorial Spain by James S. Amalang, was another book that just made people feel very real. You know, we, we have certain presuppositions in our modern day and age about what it means to be a religious person, what it means to interact with people of other faiths, and sort of we have these conceptions, particularly in the United States, of the intractability of the relationship between Jews and Muslims or Muslims and Christians or things like that. And late medieval, early Renaissance Spain was this really strange place where there was a level of coexistence. It it, it wasn't by any means um, um, perfect or, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it wasn't totally... <laughs> I keep thinking of words like chill or uh, familial. Those aren't quite quite right, but it it wasn't perfect. But there was sort of a a rough hewn ability to get things done and move about the day, in much the same way that the history of the city of Jerusalem often has these long periods of a sort of coexistence. Um, the the word in Spanish that they use is convivencia, which now that I'm thinking about it, conviv like living together. Yeah, just sort of getting on with it. Uh, and you know, there were, there were horrible times and, and obviously in 1492 when the Jews were expelled from Spain, it was, it was awful. But at the same time, there's so many really, really rich cultural things that happened as a result of these cultures mixing and bouncing off of each other. Uh, one of the first great translation efforts to try to get as much of the world's knowledge into a single language in a single library happened in southern Spain during this period. So it's just just really, really fascinating and incredibly cosmopolitan in a way that we don't think of places in the world being more than 400 years ago. Uh, well, during my studies, I did also do some light reading. For instance, I read Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen for the first time this year, which surprised me there's so much sass in a lot of the kind of i guess you'd call them uh classic chick lit books um I, I don't mean that to demean them i just think of how they are always generally marketed uh i saw greta gerwig's little women last year and so was kind of on a kick to read some of those books that i remember as being sort of vaguely in that same wheelhouse uh and this was this was delightful uh you definitely you de definitely get some hard burns in some of these old novels, and I really enjoyed it. Speaking of delightful, I read The Perfectly Proper Paranormal Museum this year by Catherine Weiss. I met Catherine Weiss at a steampunk convention a few years ago, and she was so kind and, and genuine and sweet. Our, our tables were next to each other where we were selling our merch. So we ended up sitting around a lot of the time waiting for people to come by and want to buy things from us. And so we, we chatted quite a bit and she's just a wonderful person. Uh, and she gave me this little uh, single page zine 
that had a short story about a seance going wrong and like a ghost killing people. It was really fun, you know, just just like eight little pages that told a very complete, very satisfying story. And I loved it. So I ordered this book of hers and it's just very fun. It's incredibly cozy. Uh, her her writing just felt like curling up with <laughs> felt like curling up with a good book. That's literally what I did. Come on, strangely, get it together. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Definitely, if you're looking for something cozy to read, this is. I can't think of anything better. The opposite of cozy is the play Celestina by Fernando de Rojas. It's Oh man, how do you even explain this? Um, this is a, a, a sort of a Renaissance Inquisitorial Spain era. It was really a novel. It was never. It, it was written to be read aloud, sort of in a salon type situation. But I, the best of my knowledge, it wasn't performed as a play. But it's pretty much a, a kind of a. Oh man, how do you even explain it? It's the main character, the title character, Celestina, is a procuress. She's also something of a a witch. She's kind of a a procuress is someone who would arrange sexual liaisons for people. So not quite like a madam in a brothel, but sort of like she would kind of she would help people sneak into places and things like that. Um, A very. interestingly drawn character in a time and place where a a self-starter woman with a bit of a witchy flair would just be a villain and sort of look down upon she actually gets a more complicated uh character and there's some kind of hints as to her backstory and things that again you wouldn't expect uh based on sort of our modern perspective of spain 400 years ago uh, speaking of, of books that challenge perspectives, I read a scholarly work called Sideshow USA by Rachel Adams this year. Uh, really, really fascinating history of Sideshow in America, going all the way back to the 1880s with sort of the Wonder Museums by people like Barnum, and then all the way up to the modern day with self-made freaks like the Jim Rose Sideshow. I can't say as I can really recommend this book. If you're interested in the history of sideshows, I think there are better books. This one leaned a little too heavily on, I guess, certain modern interpretations that are overwhelmingly negative of early sideshows. Uh, It's sort of a a very uh, modern... There's, there's, a, there's a sort of temporal chauvinism that can come across in certain scholarly works where the past is being harshly judged based on our current mores and ideas about what is right and what is wrong. It doesn't excuse the past, but I think you can come down too heavily on people of previous eras based on your own current moral interpretations and this book tends to lean a little heavily on that i've read other contemporaneous accounts of sideshows particularly in the 20s and 30s before the sort of disability awareness movement i that's not quite the right word i i I don't know a lot about the history of that but they're sort of in the i believe in the 50s and 60s there was a push towards awareness of of disabilities that i think was very motivated from a very positive place that sought to 
you know, push our society into a more egalitarian direction in a, a way that, you know, things became wheelchair accessible, for instance, and things like that, that I, I think uh, culminated in the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but what happened during that era is that there was this overwhelming push to acknowledge disability, which I think was very good, but with some of these sideshows, uh, some of the people being exhibited in them were doing so of their own free will and actually supporting whole families by doing this. And when some of this pushback rose up to stop exhibiting quote-unquote freaks, while some people were being exploited, not all of them were being exploited. And it it actually ended up taking away some of the agency of some of the people exhibited in these sideshows. And I, I feel that Rachel Adams' work tends to lean very heavily on the sideshows bad. And, and she also is very judgmental of the human desire to consume or engage with sideshows, which is such an odd position and stance to take when you consider that she has written a 300 plus page book on the history of sideshows. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of fertile ground for, for talking about this, and I should write about it at more length in a future episode. Speaking of fertile ground, uh, we've arrived at our first series. This is a trilogy of books by Joe Abercrombie called uh, The Age of Madness, was the title of the trilogy. The books are A Little Hatred, The Trouble with Peace, and The Wisdom of Crowds. I absolutely love Joe Abercrombie. He has been described as if Akira Kurosawa directed Lord of the Rings. I like to think of him as the author George R. R. Martin thinks he is. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Joe Abercrombie writes these big doorstop fantasy novels that he fucking finishes. <clears throat> uh, so this is this trilogy is the seventh through ninth books that he has written in a universe called the first law uh he wrote an initial trilogy the blade itself before they are hanged and the last argument of kings uh and then he wrote three standalone novels um the heroes red country and i'm totally drawing a blank on what the third one is so he wrote a trilogy, then he wrote three standalone novels set in the same universe, and then he's written another trilogy, which just completed this year. And so I read all three of them this year. And what I love about his books is that his characters so often fail. It is such a trope of fantasy literature that a character is set up to have a struggle, a difficulty, a problem. You know, someone drinks too much or someone has an anger management issue or whatever. And we just know we're conditioned by having consumed boatloads of fantasy and, and whatever that a character will eventually grow beyond it and overcome this difficulty. And Joe Abercrombie is very much in the camp of human beings suck and more often than not, they don't overcome their innate issues. They don't make their way past whatever it is that is wrong with him and usually we are our own worst enemies 
you know, you'd think that books like that are depressing, but they're so bloody fun to read that I don't mind. Uh, if you like fantasy novels and you enjoy sort of a darker outlook on human beings, I cannot recommend Joe Abercrombie highly enough. Speaking of a dark outlook on human beings, I read a book called A Life Under Russian Serfdom by Sava Dmitrievich Prolevsky. This was, of course, from my Russian history course. And what's incredible about Russian serfdom is how how multi-layered it was you know we kind of think of serfs as you know the peasants uh and that they were all sort of one class but there were people within serfdom who were literate who could read and write who actually had some degree of upward mobility you know it wasn't just like a chattel slavery system even though it really really kept people down it's 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 difficult to express in a a, a brief uh mention but uh, this book is available for free through uh, Gutenberg. I highly recommend it. Uh, a Life Under Russian Serfdom by Sava Dmitrievich Prolevsky. I mentioned earlier that I, I learned all about the Inquisition. Uh, there is a book I read called The Inquisition in New Spain by John F. Chukchiak. Uh, well, John F. Chukchiak edited it. It's a collection of original documents from the Inquisition's work in New Spain, I would not at all be surprised if this was one of the source materials that Neil Stevenson uh, consulted when he was writing the second book of his Baroque cycle, just for some very specific details. It's always amazing to look at historical documents from organizations that are universally despised today. I, I don't I don't think there are many people alive today who would defend the Spanish Inquisition or who would have positive feelings about it. And yet, when you read their documentation, man, they really thought they were helping. They really thought they were helping. It's it's absolutely a, the kind of thing that makes you reconsider almost every moral stance that you yourself hold. You know, you have this idea that you are doing a good thing. You are being a good person in the world. You are really helping. And yet, when you look at something like this uh, record of inquisitorial uh, activities in New Spain, you realize that maybe you're not. Uh, Next up is Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. This was one of my favorite books that I read this year. Northanger Abbey is oh, how to how to explain. It's a pastiche of a gothic novel by Jane Austen. So there's like the heroine who get, ends up going to like the dark and distant uh, manse in the middle of nowhere, and then she thinks that there's going to be a dead body in the closet, but it's just an old shift. You know that that kind of thing. It's absolutely screamingly funny because of how often you think it's going to veer into kind of like more morbid, creepy territory, but it, it never does. It keeps building up and, and then nothing ever happens. The, the closest experience I've ever had in terms of sort of a roller coaster gothic pastiche is probably the, the um, Peter Laurie film, The Beast with Five Fingers. If you can find that film, check it out. It is it's one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. The Beast with Five Fingers. I won't even tell you what the the beast the titular beast is but it's it's a delightful film as is northanger abbey 
Oh man, I've I've sort of like in my mind now tried to come up with uh, transitions to all the, these things, but there's no transition to this. Lost Continents by L. Sprague de Camp. Uh, the name Elsprog de Camp might sound familiar to you because he was, I, be- I believe he, he wrote some of the, some, some fantasy novels and things like that. This is a work of nonfiction, basically cataloging all of the various lost continents. So things like Atlantis, obviously, but then also Lemuria, uh, Mu, etc., and, you know, kind of dovetailing into the hollow earth theory and things like that. But it's a it's a it's a nonfiction scholarly work talking about all the various writers who've written about this, the various expeditions that have tried to find them, sort of some of the various symbology and things that influence these legends and myths. And it, it's one of the most eminently readable things. You know, you, you always find such wacky characters when you start to move out towards what you could call the fringes of science, even because, you know, they're they're the, the bold pioneers, they're the people who really think they're doing something. You know, we talk about someone like or- Orville and, and Wilbur Wright as being these these sort of brave, intrepid people who, who knew which way to go and they went, but honestly, history could have just as easily remembered them as a couple of nut jobs who thought they could fly. And so it's just really, really fascinating to read about some of these people who are absolutely certain they knew where a certain lost continent was or its history or whatever. Uh, everything from seances and spiritists to classical scholars to uh, ancient Greek mathematicians, like it's all of it's in this book and it's nonfiction. So uh, if you're looking for a, a romp, I would recommend this. Uh, Sprague de Camp absolutely has great prose too so it's it's a lot of fun highly recommended sketches from a hunter's album by ivan turgenev is another book that i read for my russian history and turgenev was a uh, sort of a lower tier nobleman who went on a tour all over russia and just sort of wrote portraits of the, the people he encountered and and the meals he had and sort of uh the conversations he had almost like a, a, a 19th century Anthony Bourdain in a way he he was very non-judgmental uh in in his way in a uh, after the fashion of his time um I'm not going to say he's any sort of egalitarian saint or anything but he very much wanted to sort of capture these this rural life these portraits and it's fascinating because his book was very controversial in its day because of how it portrayed the czarist regime and sort of the stratified society that he lived in. And yet it's now come to be regarded as a sort of a classic of reportage in the era, even though uh, some of its veracity has been challenged. Uh, again, this is another work you can find uh, free of copyright or uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? In the public domain. That's the word. So uh, yeah, check that out. A Radical Worker in Tsarist Russia by Semyon Ivanovich Kanachikov. Kanachikov was a revolutionary. Like, absolute, you know, dude was, like, building bombs and, and running guns. And, and uh, some pretty some pretty hairy stuff happens in this narrative. It's his own narrative of his life. So, obviously, as with any uh, autobiography, things can be a bit skewed. But, uh, yeah, definitely worth reading. Also something that you can find pretty easily in PDF format kicking around the internet. 
And if you're interested in anarchy, radical politics, socialism, anything like that, I highly recommend reading this. It has some very good behind-the-scenes information about this kind of world. A World Without Email by Cal Newport. Speaking of different worlds, uh, Cal Newport... I am not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I'm a big fan. I read three of his books this year uh, A World Without Email, Digital Minimalism, and Deep Work. I've talked about Cal Newport quite a lot on this podcast before, but his basic premise is that we spend too much of our time engaged in light surface uh, engagement tasks, things like text messaging, answering emails. Uh, and we don't do enough deep things where we really dig into something and spend time engaging with a specific task or idea or uh, whatever. Uh, something that you, know, you as a listener of this podcast probably are somewhat engaged with is the idea of spending long amounts of time engaged with one specific thing, i.e. this podcast. And Cal Newport, I read one of his books a couple of years ago, and it's definitely pushed me in this direction of trying to rebuild my attention span, of trying to be a little bit more focused on long, uninterrupted blocks of concentration. Reading books definitely helps push me in that direction, and that's how I was able to read 130 books this year. Uh, so yeah, I highly recommend Cal Newport. If you're if you're new to his work, I think Digital Minimalism is probably his most accessible. A World Without Email is very, very uh, inside baseball, designed mostly for corporate types. Uh, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff he references about our current understandings of neuroplasticity and human attention span and self-control. So definitely worth checking out. The Golden Age of Spanish Drama, edited by Barbara Fuchs. <laughs> I definitely put that new attention span to work when reading this book. These, uh, This is a collection of plays uh, from sort of the Golden Age of Spanish Drama. It says it right there in the title. Uh, it's really, really fascinating to read some of these. Some of them are from over 100 years before Shakespeare and after, you know, we... we especially in the English-speaking Western world, we kind of, Shakespeare is like numero uno, big kahuna. But there were other writers somewhat contemporaneously in the European milieu who were writing amazing, fantastical, super weird stuff. Uh, One of the plays in this collection is a bunch of villagers doing an up, like basically a bunch of villagers doing a socialist uprising, but like written in the 1600s. It's bananas. It's it's very good. It's also really funny. There's a lot of great humor, um, and there's just there's just weird stuff. You know, we we often think that like the weirdest stuff is is our modern David Lynch's or something, but but this one of the plays in here actually has a whole scene where the play takes a break and the embodiments of concepts like love and anger and constants. Uh, have a big conversation and fight with each other. It's it's bananas. Uh, if you if you want to just like totally step outside of what kind of you think of as historical plays, this is a great uh, book for it. And there's a lot of really good explanatory notes in there as well. 
Speaking of stepping outside of ways that you're used to thinking, this year I also read The Undercover Economist by Tim Harford. I know this definitely is in the area of kind of like pop economics, uh, similar to, I think, like Freakonomics, etc. But it really did a good job of explaining to me the way that certain mentalities can be put together. I, as a very liberal person, I sometimes look at more conservative people's ideas about social welfare and, and how to help without hurting uh, with complete d- confusion. You know, and a lot of it is because they're basing their ideas off of some fairly sound economical principles, I think. Uh, and hence The Undercover Economist by Tim Harford. It's a great introduction to economics and what people actually mean when they talk about economics. Obviously, as is often pointed out, uh, homo economicus, which <laughs> I think that comes from Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial Comics. Um, uh, I think he coined the phrase homo economicus, which is the idea of the uh, idealized human as imagined by an economist doesn't exist. So there is some level of, yeah, these are really great principles and ideas and everything, but uh, human beings are also messy. Uh, Really interesting book. Definitely challenged a lot of the ways that I thought about things. Uh, this year. Speaking of books that challenge the ways I thought about things, The Fuck It Diet by Nancy Richler is, it's an anti-dieting culture book. Uh, Richler paints a very, very strong case that, very, well, a strong case, I don't know, but she paints a very compelling picture of this 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 world that she sees where the reason that we have uh, obesity and health issues in the United States has a lot more to do with the fact that for the last 50, 60 years, our country has been obsessed with dieting. So her whole uh, uh, thesis is that uh, American obesity has gone up since dieting became a thing because people have been worried about their weight. 150 years ago, people didn't worry about their weight. They just ate when they were felt hungry and that was it. So that that's the diet that Richler advocates for in this book. You just eat until you're full and don't worry about it. And eventually like you'll come back down to, and you'll find a happy medium. I don't totally agree agree with sort of all of her science that she, as she presents it but I think it's a really really important book to read and engage with if you are someone who has strong feelings about things like uh, obesity or just general body health as related to weight she she makes a very compelling case and I think it's an important book uh, I just wish that the title didn't have the f word in it so that I could like give it to my mom you know that kind of thing <laughs> Uh, speaking of controversial books, I read Lolita this year by Vladimir Nabokov, and no one told me how funny this book was. Like, yes, okay, just putting aside the thing that we all know Lolita is about, like, just, we all know, okay? I know we know, I know you know, you know I know, we know that we know. Putting all that aside, Nabokov is really good at writing his prose is excellent and the the humbert humbert character in this who thinks he's some unappreciated genius but who is actually a complete imbecile like the the dude is an idiot like 
I mean, even putting aside the thing, you know, there's there's all these passages uh, that really underscore it. And uh, like, for instance, there's a, there's a whole thing where he, he writes about how he he deigns to let someone else beat him at chess every time they play. It's just like, oh my gosh, this guy's an idiot. It's, it's, it's a very funny book. Putting aside, you know, Lolita. Um, <laughs> uh, my favorite part of the book was a lengthy description of all the noises that keep you awake when staying in a hotel. So, you know, the ice machine down the hall and then people coming and going at all hours and, and people turning on their televisions and all that. And how there's this one brief stretch from like 3.45 to 4.15 a.m. where all is quiet and you can actually sleep. But other than that, it's just no, constant noise. Uh, I definitely recommend the book if you are able to get past, you know, the thing. Uh, because there's there's so much more in it than I was expecting. It definitely has shades of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, as well as some George Orwell, and definitely quite a bit of uh, Kafka-esque moments as well. Uh, plus, uh, if you like audiobooks, the one uh, available through Audible is read by Jeremy Irons, who, I don't know about you, but anytime Jeremy Irons is saying anything into my ears it's delightful uh <laughs> just moving on to something even more delightful i am a huge fan of the series of books called the Emberverse. uh this year i read number 12 number 13 and number 14 that is the given sacrifice the golden princess and prince of outcasts by s.m sterling I, oh man, where to begin with these? I mean, if you want to talk about bananas premises, uh, the premise of these books is that they are post-apocalyptic. The apocalypse, as happens in these books, occurs in the first book, Dies the Fire, where all modern technology stops working. Not just electricity, but also gunpowder, internal combustion engines, steam locomotives, etc. It all stops working all at once, all of a sudden. Airplanes fall out of the sky, televisions go dark, uh, guns don't work. Naturally, the people who rise to the top in this situation are uh, the ones who, while we were all busy learning computers and how to drive, were busy studying the blade. Uh, so people like Renfair blacksmiths and uh, 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 people who know how to play antique harps and people who know about the Middle Ages are the ones who become the new uh, centers of power. And it's it's so dumb and also really fun. Uh, Sterling really writes people very well. And it's really fun to see the series sort of transition from post-apocalyptic, you know, we got to survive in this weird changed world, to a kind of high fantasy where you have castles and kings and people going on quests for magic swords. So by the time you get to The Given Sacrifice, The Golden Princess, and Prince of Outcasts, you're in full-on high fantasy territory with, like, witches casting spells and all kinds of shit like that. And it's it's so dumb, it's so fun, and it's so mall ninja. It's... I, I enjoy them. Uh, your mileage may vary, but I definitely enjoy them. Speaking of things with which your mileage may vary, I reread Lucifer Volume 1, Devil in the Gateway, this year by Carrie Hampton Weston et al. Uh, this is a spinoff from Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics. In the Sandman comics, Lucifer uh, 
just he quits. He quits hell. He locks it all up. He gives the keys to the Sandman, and he just uh, f's off into the darkness, as my friends and I like to say. Uh, and he goes and opens a piano bar. So th- this uh, uh, trade paperback of the first volume of the comic is about him dealing with some business on Earth. I really enjoy these comics. the The Lucifer comics. I actually enjoy the Lucifer comics more than I enjoy Sandman. Um, it's a it's a little bit more of a, a tighter narrative. It's a little bit more uh, focused around a, a smaller cast of characters, and uh, I, I just I, I don't know. The character is really interesting and compelling to me. The TV show adaptation of the comics sort of borrows some elements, but it's very different. And I, I'm happy that it's very different. I don't have to complain about them screwing up some specific detail like the color of his hair uh, because they're they're telling their own story and exploring some of the same themes. Uh, so yeah, I, I recommend checking out at least the first trade of the comic, especially if you're a Sandman fan. Cerebus, Volume 3, Church and State by Dave Sim and Gerhard. This is the third of I think there's like 14 volumes of Cerebus they're all about the size of a phone book I'm working on volume four right now uh it'll probably take me a couple of years to read all of them and I plan to read all of them uh it is one of the most idiosyncratic works available you know Dave Sim wrote thousands and thousands of pages of Cerebus and made most of the artwork himself Gerhard did a lot of the backgrounds and sort of helped him with the art but it really is idiosyncratically this this one guy's work and and some of his politics are deeply problematic and his views on religion and philosophy are so freaking weird but i i'm drawn to it because of that because of how problematic and strange and 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 weird it is i i love when i can just sink into one person's idiosyncratic world and and try to understand them through the art that they've made i i really deeply enjoy that speaking of idiosyncratic comics i read the entire nine volumes of preacher this year by garth ennis and steve dillon uh, including gone to texas till the end of the world proud americans ancient history dixie fried war in the sun salvation all hell's a coming and alamo and my God, the characters in that comic are such lovable degenerates. I've already recommended the comic on this podcast before. I won't waste your time recommending it to you more. I will say that in terms of something deeply idiosyncratic and of its time, Preacher is very much mid to late 90s, so much mid to late 90s, and yet transcends that by wanting to be about other things and talk about other things it's not just grim gritty uh sacrilegious nonsense there is also there's there's a couple of issues that are meditations on vietnam and what it means to come home after trauma and what it means to face your trauma i i really really recommend preacher to anyone who like sacrilegious silliness, but also anyone who is interested in in meditations on trauma and, again, the idea of being your own worst enemy that are told in unconventional ways. Plus, it's really funny. It's, it's 
super funny uh, and very messed up. Uh, the Show Preacher, I also highly recommend if you like that sort of thing. Uh, although the show is very, very different than the comic. And I, th- I think that's good. I'm glad that the show, again, is a very different adaptation of the same material because it, it covers it covers different territory. Moving on to another comic that I love for its weirdness, Manhattan Projects Volume 4 by Hickman and Pitara. Manhattan Projects is so bug nuts weird. It's imagine if the Manhattan Project that we've all heard of was just one of dozens of weird super science going on. Uh, basically, you know, imagine if you have a bunch of Rick Sanchez's all running around and inventing portals to other dimensions and building giant lasers and figuring out how to use actual magic to fight sorcerers. Uh, you know, uh, the, the best the best kind of summary of it I think I can point you at is the fact that uh, Albert Einstein, uh, there, there is there is a there is an issue of the comic called Einstein the Barbarian where Albert Einstein gets lost in a universe where physics don't work and it's magic and he learns how to do magic. Uh, Rick and Morty did a similar episode recently that I, I have to say was uh, not as good as what this comic did with it. Although, uh, you know, you're, as with anything, your mileage may vary. Probably the most forgettable comic I read this year was The October Faction, Volume 3, by uh, Miles and Damien Worm. It wasn't until I finished reading this that I realized that I had read it before. It's about a family with supernatural powers, like fighting werewolves and stuff. It's, it's, I hate to sound insulting, but it's kind of low rent wannabe Hellboy. Uh, the art is really cool though. I think that's why I originally picked up the series and made it all the way to volume three, but I can't see myself reading more. The first 20 hours, how to learn anything fast by Josh Kaufman. This is one of my favorite books I read this year. Josh Kaufman sort of lays out a case for how people talk about 10,000 hours as being this magic number that you're trying to get to to master something. And he actually argues that in the first 20 hours, you can actually get to a level where you enjoy doing a thing enough that it will make the following uh, 9,900 80 hours or whatever. I'm so bad at math. The following 9,980 hours fun by getting you to a point where you can actually enjoy the thing and engage with it in a way that has value to you. So he walks the reader through himself picking up and learning five new skills, things like typing in Dvorak, playing Go, windsurfing. And as someone who is always picking up new skills, I found the book really helpful and interesting. I don't know how your mileage will vary. He definitely is writing from a very privileged standpoint where he can afford to just take up windsurfing on a whim. But at the same time, he also writes about learning Go, and you can learn Go very cheaply. He is a wonderful companion writer to Cal Newport in that he argues for there being a lot of value in small amounts of time that are deeply focused. So if you want to learn to be good at playing Go, say, instead of just kind of vaguely tootling around with it, you you spend an hour every day really, really specifically studying it, and then you don't the rest of the time. And I think that's there's a lot of value in 
sort of sharing that idea. I know people look at me and the things that I've accomplished and think that I must just be constantly working. And I, I do work really hard, but I also pull back and take a lot of time for leisure. And I think understanding how best to use your time when you are working hard is super important. So this is another book that is great for helping you make the most of your time. <laughs> the scariest book I read all year was a nonfiction book called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Perlroth. Uh, this book is about the current state of cyber warfare. And it's really scary, uh, especially for some of the things that this book has to say about Russia and the Ukraine and cyber attacks, particularly given, you know, the way the world tends to be, uh, that cyber attacks could happen. I had no idea that Iran was the world's third third uh, cyber superpower after the United States, or sorry, fourth. It goes, uh, United States, Russia, and China are all kind of the, the big three, and then it's Iran, which... I, I wouldn't have known that, but they have the world's third largest stockpile of cyber weapons. Uh, fifth is North Korea. It's, 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 it's a terrifying book. I'm going to stop talking about it. Uh, this is how they tell me the world ends. Check it out. Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances by Lisa Morton. This was sent to me as a birthday present by a friend of mine last year, and I love it. I did a lot of my academic work on seances and witchcraft and things like that when I was back in school and, you know, wrote these big long papers about it. And I have a really hard time talking about a lot of that stuff to a lay audience, to people who haven't read the thousands of pages that I have of original sources. Fortunately, we've got Lisa Morton, who wrote an absolutely readable, delightful page turner called Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. I highly recommend you check it out. It's so much fun. Speaking of so much fun, I finally completed Moby Dick by Herman Melville this year. It was a New Year's resolution for 2020. Uh, it took me almost two years to finally get around to finishing it. And I'm so glad I did. I cannot express how delightful, how beautiful, how joyous the prose of Moby Dick is. Herman Melville loves to play with words, and there is so much wordplay. Uh, a, a, a very close friend of mine just recently started reading Moby Dick, and I was actually at their house while I was reading it. And they said to me, I thought when you stopped and read pages aloud to us that you were cherry-picking the best bits, but it is literally every single page of Moby Dick that has something wondrous and delightful to share. It's absolutely true. I could talk about Moby Dick all day. And at some point I might, I, I've, I've been meaning to do a Moby Dick themed episode of this podcast where I talk about not only Moby Dick, the book, but also the various adaptations and sort of uh, inspired works. So look for that in the coming year. And if I don't do it, you'll, you always can pester me uh, by sending me some mail. Speaking of big, heavy, hefty tomes that uh, we always all mean to read, I read Don Quixote this year by Miguel Cervantes, and I read the Tobias Smollett translation, which uh, has has received some flack for maybe not being as accurate in terms of translating specific Spanish words and things, but I think really does a wonderful job of capturing the comedic tone and glorious nonsense of the original. Uh, I don't obviously haven't read the original in Spanish, but 
the book made me laugh constantly. Uh, so good job, Smollett. I I think my favorite discovery in Don Quixote was how much of an effect he has on other people. You know, there, there's sort of a cultural appreciation of Don Quixote as, oh, he thinks he's a knight and he's tilting at windmills and he's crazy, right? And yet, uh, so much of the book is actually about how his whimsical nonsense ends up causing other people to behave whimsically and nonsensically. It's sort of this idea that by deciding to insist upon the silliness that he is perpetuating, he drives other people to silliness. And I, I find that really beautiful. I, I think it's a wonderful book and, you know, it's in the public domain. So go, go get it. Go get it. Analogia by George Dyson. Analogia is a... God, the book is just beautiful. George Dyson, uh, if that name sounds familiar to you, not because of the vacuum cleaner, but uh, because of Freeman Dyson, who came up with the idea of a Dyson sphere made popular by Star Trek The Next Generation. The idea is you encase an entire star inside of a giant uh, orb of... Uh, you know, you basically build a ship around a star and then you've got unlimited, you can harness 100% of the star's energy. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, Freeman Dyson's son, George, uh, now lives in Bellingham. And I've I've gone by his studio. I, I, I believe I met him once. I've been trying to get a hold of him to uh, talk with him on this podcast because I think we'd have a lot to talk about. But Analogia is sort of a meditation on technology and exploration in the context of stories about the Arctic and Northern latitudes. So this was the first book I read preparing for my trip to the Arctic that I'll be taking next year. And I think one of my favorite things about it is talking about the design of Aboriginal Alaskan kayaks and how they had a split bow, kind of looks like a snake's snake's tongue. And how when Europeans came along, they they said, that's ridiculous. No one builds a boat that way. Don't do that. Uh, and yet Dyson is one of the people who's found through building kayaks with this traditional design that it actually cuts through the water more smoothly to have these two little bows. It's this whole weird thing. It's an amazing book. It also has meditations on the ideas of, uh, oh man, distributed consciousness. So the idea that something can have consciousness not located in a single individual. So things like a pod of whales might have a group consciousness or a fungal network. Uh, it's really good stuff. Uh, no, I wasn't high while I read it. <laughs> Speaking of uh, meditations on consciousness, I read the Salvation Trilogy by Peter F. Hamilton this year. That is Salvation, Salvation Lost, and The Saints of Salvation. Oh, uh, man. Uh, just uh, delightful nonsense, big epic space opera sci-fi about humanity fighting against an invasion by hostile aliens. Uh, there's portals. So humanity has invented uh, portable portal technology. Uh, think Stargates, but then people carry portals inside of portals and you could throw a portal through a portal to have a bigger portal to portal portals. Uh Peter of Hamilton really has been thinking with portals. Uh, the book is really fun. The aliens are super weird, and uh, it's not quite as hard sci-fi as something by Alistair Reynolds, but it's close. 
I highly recommend it. And I think it's super fun. I hope you do as well. Uh, speaking of things, uh, written by people who think about things, a friend of mine who is a productivity consultant at a large multinational corporation, uh, recommended this next book to me. I often ask people who work in professions far away from my own, what book about what you do would you most wish everybody else in the world had read? Uh, and she recommended this book. It's called Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal at Al. Uh, McChrystal was tasked with sort of rearranging the United States Army's bureaucratic structure in Iraq uh, back in 2003 in order to better respond to a situation that was unlike any of the U.S. Army had really faced before. And so he basically worked on decentralizing authority, empowering underlings, things like that. And hence you get a team made out of teams. Uh, it's such an inside baseball corporate productivity type book, not uh, dissimilar from A World Without Email by Cal Newport, but I'm really glad I read it just because of how much insight it gave me into not only managing people, but also being someone who is managed. I have a tendency to not work well in group situations, but this gave me a lot of insight into how I could still maintain a level of autonomy and individuality in a sort of corporate situation. Uh, highly recommend it if you're interested in that sort of thing. Uh, definitely not for everybody. However, something that I think really should be for everybody is this next book, We Will Not Cancel Us by Adrian Marie Brown. This book is a really, I think, clear-eyed look at woke culture and cancellation and social justice movements from someone who has at times been canceled, been a canceller, and sort of wants to really grapple with what that all means. It's something that I myself have a lot of history with grappling with as well as, you know, having been raised religious and, and with this, this precept of let he who is without blame cast the first stone. It's the kind of thing that really gives me pause. Uh, you know, at what point can I sit in judgment over someone else? And at what point is anyone else entitled to sit in judgment over me? And Brown is grappling with the same kind of things. The The book is a small one. It's a really, really uh, good piece of uh, literature that I think anyone who's interested in social justice or, or creating any kind of social change should read. It really grapples with the difficult questions of how do you affect change and correct bad behavior when you yourself are guilty of that behavior in your own time uh it's a it's a very uh it's a situation that i think brown approaches with humor but also with a sense of gravity speaking of gravity the next book the trouble with gravity by richard panic is the last one i'm going to talk about on this episode the trouble with gravity is so good it's I had no idea that in many ways physicists still don't quite actually understand gravity. Did you know this? They, they don't really know how gravity gravities with the things and gravity? Uh, I certainly didn't. Uh, the book is 
fantastic and uh, it's absolutely weird. Like there's some weird stuff going on at the edges of our understanding of gravity. And uh, this book is a delightful uh, sort of pop sci introduction to a lot of that weirdness. So check it out. All right, that is the first 60 books. I think I'm gonna leave the next 70 for uh, <laughs> for the next episode, and uh, I will see you folks all next time. So uh, yeah, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments, uh, suggestions of books you want me to read, you can mail those ideas or the books themselves to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, number 11, 98225. That's all confused. I'm going to start that over. You can mail them to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, number 11, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. There we go. (laughs) I hope you all have a great, uh, great new year and I will see you in a week with part two.